Chapter 7 of Famous Sea Fights by John R. Hale. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Famous Sea Fights by John R. Hale. Chapter 7 The Battle Off the Gunfleet, 1666. The decline of Spain as a great power was largely due to the unsuccessful attempt to coerce the Dutch people. Out of the struggle arose the Republic of the United Provinces and Holland, one from the sea, and almost an amphibious state, became in a few years a great naval power. A hardy race of sailors was trained in the fisheries of the North Sea. Settlements were established in the Far East, and fleets of Dutch East Indiamen broke the Spanish monopoly of Asiatic trade. It was to obtain a depot and watering place for their East India men that the Dutch founded Cape Town with far-reaching results on the future development of South Africa. A Dutch fleet had assisted in defending the Armada, but the rise of this naval power on the eastern shores of the narrow seas made rivalry with England on the waters inevitable. In the seventeenth century there was a series of hard-fought naval wars between England and the United Provinces. Under the two first Stuart kings of England, there were quarrels with the Dutch that nearly led to war. The Dutch colonists and traders in the far eastern seas had used high-handed measures to prevent English competition. Nearer home, there were disputes as to the right claimed by the king's ship to make any foreign ship lower her flag and salute the English ensign. But it was not till the days of the Commonwealth that the first war broke out. It was a conflict between two republics. Its immediate cause was Cromwell's Navigation Act, which deprived the Dutch of a considerable part of their carrying trade. The first fight took place before the formal declaration of war, and was always the result of a Dutch captain refusing the customary salute to a Commonwealth ship. In this, as in later conflicts with Holland, while England was still able to live on its own products, the Dutch were in the position in which we are now, for the command of the sea was vital to their daily life. Their whole wealth depended on their great fishing fleets in the North Sea. Their India men, which brought the produce of the East to Northern Europe through the Straits of Dover, and the carrying trade, in which they were the carriers of the goods of all Central Europe, which the Rhine and their canals brought into their ports. The mere prolongation of a naval war meant endless loss to the merchants and shipowners of Holland. The development of ocean-borne commerce had led to great improvements in shipbuilding in the three-quarters of a century since the days of the Armada, and the fleets that met in the Channel and the North Sea during Cromwell's Dutch War were far more powerful than those of Medina Sidonia and Howard. The nucleus of the English fleet had been formed by the permanent establishment created by Charles I, but the ships for which he had levied the ship-money were used against him in the Civil War for the seafaring population, and the people of the ports mostly sided with the Parliament. The operations against Rupert in the Mediterranean, the war with the Algerines, and the expeditions to the West Indies had helped to form, for the Commonwealth, a body of experienced officers and seamen, and in Blake, Cromwell had at least one admiral of the first rank. The fleets on both sides sometimes numbered as many as a hundred sail. The guns mounted in broadside tiers had come to be recognized as the weapons that must decide a sea-fight. And in this first Dutch war we see on both sides attempts to use tactical formations that would give the best scope to gunpower. 
though a battle was always likely to develop into an irregular melee, in which the boldest exchanged broadsides and the shirkers hung back, there were attempts to fight in regular lines, the ships giving each other mutual support. Want of traditional experience, marked differences in the speed and manoeuvring power of ships, and the rudimentary character of the signalling made it difficult to keep the line, but it was early recognized as an ideal to be aimed at. The old oar-driven galleys, with their heavy batteries in the bows, and all the guns pointing ahead, went into battle, as at Lepanto, in line abreast. The broadside battleship would thus have her guns pointed at her consorts. The line abreast was used only to bear down on the enemy. The fighting formation was the line ahead. This was adopted at first as a fleet running down from windward closed upon its enemy. Unless they were actually running away, the other side would be sailing in line ahead, with the wind abeam. It was soon realized that in this formation an admiral had his fleet under better control, and gradually the normal formation for fleets became line ahead, and hostile fleets either fought running on parallel courses on the same tack, or passed and repassed each other on opposite tacks. But this was the result of a long evolution, and the typical formal battles, fought out by rule in the close-hauled line ahead, belonged to the eighteenth century. The first Dutch war ended with Blake's victory off the Kentish Knock. The second war in the days of Charles II is best remembered in England in connection with a national disgrace, the Dutch raid on Chatham and the blockade of the Thames. This disaster was the result of a piece of almost incomprehensible folly on the part of the king and his advisers. But it came shortly after a great naval victory, the story of which is by most forgotten. It is worth telling again, if only to show that the disaster in the Thames was not the fault of the British navy, and that even under Charles II there were glorious days for our fleet. It is also interesting as a typical naval battle of the seventeenth century. Hostilities began in 1664, without a formal declaration of war, the conflict opening with aggressions and reprisals in the colonial sphere of action. English fleets seized Dutch trading ships on the African coast and Dutch islands in the West Indies. In North America, the Dutch settlement of New Amsterdam at the mouth of the Hudson was occupied, annexed, and renamed New York, in honor of His Highness the Duke of York, the brother of the King. England drifted into the war as the result of conflicts in the colonies, and was in a state of dangerous unreadiness for the struggle on the sea. "'God knows how little fit we are for it,' wrote Pepys, who, as Secretary of the Navy, knew the whole position. There was the utmost difficulty in obtaining men for the ships that were being got ready for the sea. The press-gangs brought in poor creatures whom the captain described as a useless rabble. There were hundreds of desertions. Happily, the Dutch preparations were also backwards, and England had thus some breathing time. In June, the two fleets, under the Duke of York and the Dutch Admiral Opdam, each numbering nearly a hundred sail, were in the North Sea, and on the third they met in battle, some thirty-five miles southeast of Lowestoff. Opdam was driven back to the Texel, with the loss of several ships. The Duke of York had behaved with courage and spirit during the fight, and was covered with splashes of the blood of officers killed beside him on the quarter-deck, where he himself was slightly wounded. But he showed slackness and irresolution in the pursuit, and failed to reap the full results of his victory. During the rest of the summer, 
there were more or less successful enterprises against the Dutch trade, but the plague in London, in the ports and dockyards, and even in the fleet itself, seriously interfered with the prosecution of the war. As usual at that time, the winter months were practically a time of truce. In the spring of 1666, both parties were ready for another North Sea campaign. The Dutch had fitted out more than eighty ships under Admiral de Ruyter, and the English fleet was put under the command of Monk, Duke of Albemarle, with Prince Rupert, the fiery cavalry leader of the Civil War, as his right-hand man. Both were soldiers who had had some sea experience. It was still the time when it was an ordinary event for a courtier to command a battleship, with a sailor to translate his orders into sea language, and look after the navigation for him. Pepys tells how he heard Monk's wife, the Duchess of Albemarle, perhaps echoing what her husband had said in private, cry mightily out against the having of gentlemen captains with feathers and ribbons, and wish the king would send her husband to sea with the plain old sea captains that he served with formerly. Monk and Rupert went to join the fleet that was assembling at the Nore on 23rd April. It was not ready for sea till near the end of May. On 1st June, when part of the fleet was detached under Rupert to watch the Straits of Dover, Monk met de Ruyter, who was in superior force, off the Essex coast and began a battle that lasted for four days. The news of the first day's fighting set London rejoicing, but soon there came disappointing reports of failure. The four days' battle had ended in defeat. Outnumbered as he was, Monk had made a splendid fight on the first two days, hoping from hour to hour for Rupert's arrival. On the third day, the Sunday, he had to retire towards the Thames, covering his retreat with a rear guard of sixteen of his best ships. Several of these touched on the Galloper sand, and Askew's ship, the Prince, ran hard aground on the bank. Askew struck his flag, and the Dutch burned his ship, abandoning an effort to carry her off, because at last Rupert's squadron was in sight. On the fourth day a confused melee of hard fighting off the Thames' mouth ended in Monk retiring into the river. He had lost twenty ships and some three thousand men, but he had fought so well that the Dutch bought their victory dearly, and, after attempting for a few days to blockade the Thames, had to return to Holland to refit and make good their losses. Amid the general discouragement at the failure of the fleet, there was an outburst of mutual accusations of misconduct among the captains, and even some bitter attacks on Monk, the general at sea. Fault was found with the dividing of the fleet on a false report, with Monk's haste to attack the Dutch when he was short of ships, and finally with his retreat before the enemy into the Thames. Monk, however,